I write on Facebook with no censorship as if it was a personal space that has no limits and I don't let my clients read my stuff. I put them on limited profile. I can't unfriend them because it would be unfriendly. To me, psychoanalysis is a mental version of lancing a wound. Suppose you had a really big cut in your arm and you had to really go deep into it with some horrible, painful tool to get all the dirt out and each time it hurts more and more and then slowly it starts to mend and mend and mend and then your skin cauterizes and you just have a scar. I don't actually enjoy a sunset unless there's someone next to me to enjoy it too or I can photograph it and share it. I hardly enjoy anything that isn't able to be described afterwards on Facebook or to a friend and that's a failing as well as a quality it's nice for the people who enjoy sharing but it's not good for me because it makes me very dependent on other people I'm not a solitary person I'm not self-sufficient I depend on other people and when I do my CV I always put interests number one conversation hello I'm Dave I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together I need to get better Please make me better I want to get better 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 acquainted with you Today we're getting better acquainted with Hannah. Uh, Hello Hannah. Hello Dave. And the first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? I met you at uh, Spark London, which is a true tale storytelling event in the Canal Cafe Theatre in uh, Maida Vale. And um, our mutual friend, Joanna Yates, who runs it, she, I think, would have introduced us at some point. But it's actually lost in the mists of time. I've known mm. you for several years. Yeah. So we met through being both being storytellers, only you're much more dedicated and <laughs> spend more time doing it than I do. I just went on stage about five or six times, including a little stint in Edinburgh, where we did it for Grant Whiskey. I also met you by chance in a railway station, and it was fun because we weren't quite sure if we were quite <laughs> sure who we were, but we sort of were, because we both change physically a lot. Um, and I've always thought of you as a person who tells and collects stories, and you seem to do it more and more prominently because I see you on <laughs> Facebook. So having you here asking me to tell a story makes total sense. <laughs> well, that's true, and we're both quite avid avid Facebook users, I think. So that's the thing, when you, once you sort of get an acquaintance now, if you're an active Facebook user, that acquaintance can kind of grow and grow like a lot more than it would have done in the past. Because, you know, it's been said, someone once said it of me, and I think... I would apply it more to you than I would to me, but someone once said of me that uh, I use Facebook in a very unique way, uh, but I think you use Facebook in a re- unique well, way. Saying I go on Facebook is like saying the Pope is Catholic. Oh, everyone's on Facebook. It's several yeah. hours a day in my case, and I've decided to use it as my main <laughs> outlet for writing. So when yeah. I do a status update, it tends to take me a while, I tend to redo it. And when I, I try to read all my friends' updates and comment from the heart and I write them privately if they're going through tough times and therefore I've used it in a very proactive way and I've become Marmite. People either love me or hate me. I've been (laughs) blocked and unfriended by all sorts of people including famous ones who I won't mention because... It's funny to be blocked by them. But um, but then I, other people respond because what I do is basically I write on Facebook with no censorship as if it was a personal space that has no limits and I don't let my clients read my stuff. I put them on limited profile. I can't unfriend them because it would be unfriendly. <laughs> and um, and my the youngest members of my family, thankfully, aren't interested in Facebook anymore. But if I do something very explicit, I might just remove them from it. Otherwise, I just... Am who I am, and I let people see it. And it's I try to write as much about 
the world that I discover is about myself, but always without any barriers or reservations. And that's where the Marmite comes in. Some people find it effusive, gushing, oversharing, too personal, un-British, you know. See, all of these things are good things to me. You know, this well, is the thing. So. <laughs> it depends who one's, what one's taste is. I right, mean, my sister exactly. once said to me in despair when I was having a meltdown about my inability to connect with the people around me, she said, yes, but you're living in the wrong country. There are countries in the world where your faults are seen as faults and your virtues as virtues, but you live in a country where your virtues are seen as defects and your defects as virtues. And it's not for me to say what's good or bad. And yeah. I don't think there is good or bad. And I like right. all kinds of Facebookers. I have Facebook yeah, friends yeah. I adore who only ever publish cultural things, but they're such good cultural things. My life mm. is expanded. And I have those who are completely beguilingly honest about their severe depression or alcoholism and so on. And that allows the rest of us to support them and share. And I, I'm somewhere in between. I try to write about issues, but also about emotions and I don't think it is a better or worse way it's the only way I know how well, to be you write very openly as well like you engage with the other people in Facebook as well you sort of it's a it's a form of communication the way that you do it in a way that some sometimes if people hear like the idea of you using it as a like a almost like a blog they wouldn't realize necessarily how inter interactive I feel that that your Facebook persona oh, well thank is. you I hope I hope so I do try to really <clears throat> make the same amount of space for anyone else who's commenting on a thread than I do for you know my own comments that I start I start a thread and then the point is for other people to join in but I also make a point of reading and responding to everyone else which means see several of my real life friends who are very close to me they say but how do you do it how do you have so many friends on Facebook how do you get so much response I said do you know how there is only one way to do Facebook properly and that's unfortunate and I'm freelance and I work for myself and that is to give it between two and five hours a day there is no other way it's the same as how do photographers get good they take 7,000 pictures in one day and they get one good one and an ordinary amateur photographer will take 30 pictures and not understand why they're all crap because he didn't take 3,000 that's why they're crap and so spending time on fate and so I'm trying to wean myself off but actually Facebook done at a distance is no fun anymore because mm. you miss things you discover that someone close to you has just had a major event in that you missed it then you quickly catch up and then you find yourself launching into three more hours of, and then there's the whole politics there's Gaza then, then there's a feuding and you get drawn in despite yourself and you right. can't be above it all I join in everything and so there's a <laughs> bit of schoolyard bullying and I try my best to defend people who are bullied then I get bullied then I'm accused of being a bully quite frequently because I say if I think someone's aggressive or unkind I say so yeah um, without naming them, I'll either mention or I'll tell them, and then I'll, they will tell other people that Hannah is a bully. So I will get accused of that, and I accept that that's part and parcel of putting yourself out there in this virtual pub that is Facebook. But I really have become passionate about it because I work from home, I work alone, I'm often in between jobs and therefore have lots of free time because when I work, I work 6am to midnight every single day and then I don't work for three weeks and right, then I have right. that time. And I spend a lot of it on Facebook and I'm not ashamed. I'm a photographer, I use Facebook as my only outlet for my photos. People keep telling me, print, publish a book, have an exhibition, I'll come to your exhibition, I'll hold it for you, I'll buy your prints, sell them, da 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 I'm just not ambitious that way. I just want to share, and that's all I care about, really. And my darling friend from Facebook, Anne Mitchell, who's a, uh, an actor in EastEnders, she plays Cora, and she's a very, very wonderful human being and fascinating and interesting and very avid campaigner for all sorts of human rights and gay rights and this right and that right and she's also a wonderful actor who's a Shakespearean actress who does 
everything. She is lovely, and I met her for the first time. I had a party at my house for just for women this time called Face to Facebook, and I invited ten interesting women who I liked, who were all either writers or actors or teachers or whatever they happened to be, to come to my home and meet each other. And we all became firm friends forever. And she was one of them. And she said that she felt that my existence could be summed up in a single syllable of, to what I live for, and it would be share. And I often thought back, what she said was, she's very insightful. She picked that out after a few months of knowing me. I don't actually enjoy a sunset unless there's someone next to me to enjoy it too, or I can photograph it and share it. I hardly enjoy anything that isn't able to be described afterwards on Facebook or to a friend. And that's a failing as well as a quality. It's nice for the people who enjoy sharing, but it's not good for me because it makes me very dependent on other people. I'm not a solitary person. I'm not self-sufficient. I depend on other people. And when I do my CV, I always put interests, number one, conversation. Because that's more interesting to me than travel or reading or photography or film or all the other things I have. Well, you're on the right podcast for that, then. (laughs) I don't want it to be a monologue, though. No, no, no. Well, don't worry. I do do chip in. So, yeah, the the second question I ask everybody is, what do you do now? I do several things. I have an existence that is a paid professional existence, and I have the other half of my time, which is all stuff I do voluntarily or because I want to, and I, I don't charge for it or I'm not paid for it. So as a living, I have a little company that does qualitative market research which means organizing running and analyzing focus groups and interviews with people for my clients who are often abroad I do my focus groups in the UK and the US for my European clients who who need their English field work done by someone and I ask people questions focus groups of eight to ten people they're three hours long they're qualitative and projective so it's creative techniques so if I was interviewing you Dave about say the design of say those shoes that you're wearing I wouldn't say do you like those shoes and what do you like about them because that would be too rational I would say if those shoes were a person in your life, what person would it be? If they were an oh, animal, what animal would it be? Okay. What colour would they be? What music do you hear when you put them on? Right. You know, you actually, normally you do focus groups in a funnel technique where you ask generally. So I say, hey, if I say to you shoes, what do you say to me? <laughs> and if I say the planet shoe, what does it have on it? Da, 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 da. And then the planet, you know, Doc Martin's shoes. And then, I right. say, and then I say those shoes, whatever they happen to be. Then that planet, you go on it. What's the landscape like? What's, right, okay. What do they write on the local newspaper? What do the people have on there? What are they wearing? How do they interact romantically? What children <laughs> do they have? And then I will discover, for my analysis for my client, what that brand of shoes means to you emotionally right, and subliminally okay. and unconsciously. So I'm not trying to cheat you and find no, out no. things you don't want to reveal. I'm just trying to force you to tell me what you really think through images rather than through direct. Direct speech is quantitative research, which I don't do, which is 3,000 people are interviewed about those shoes and they said, would you prefer it if there were 10 holes for the laces or or 12 holes? Should they be brown or black or grey? You know, that's quantitative and they say, okay, the, the consensus is this. Qualitative means the emotional content is, and this is how you should brief your advertising agency, because these shoes are about the mountains or these shoes are about childhood they're about the emotion of one's child so that's what they'll put in the ad because I will have got that out of you from all those images I asked you for yeah that's how that works so that's the kind of work I do which is never boring and always interesting but very (laughs) hard work I run a bespoke service where my clients can rely on me to do exactly what each individual client wants there's no set process and then for myself what I do with all my rest of my time is socializing as much as possible meeting friends old and new because interacting with people live is really my it's your thing the petrol that runs my the car of me (laughs) it's my fuel but then 
otherwise when I'm on my own which I am a lot I do writing and photography photography is my big passion has been since I was eight years old I have been paid I have been an official photographer for for, for a company for several years where they hired me to do conferences and so on but mostly I do friends plays actors portfolios the actors are usually in between jobs are totally penniless they demand to pay me something and they say can i give you 50 quid and i say okay if you insist but the work i've done for them is worth 500 or a thousand or 1500 right. pounds so it's not there's no point in charging they can't afford so i'll either do it for free or the 50 quid is a gesture which is always nice and yeah. you're a slap in the face but the photography is my passion and i'm learning while i'm photographing their faces so in fact before you go i'm going to photograph you because you look nice in your purple shirt and you're, <laughs> and you're, well, you're very so I'll make a nice portrait that. for your website. And I'm I'm getting I'm getting I'm getting more and more passionate about it and my my strength in photography, although I like to do all kinds of genres, is is portraiture and street photos of people I don't know who I yeah. then get to know. Or portraits of friends and trying to capture people's essence in the portraits. And well, you're ve- I mean, I I really enjoy your photography. I, oh, like what you. I see of it on Facebook, you're you're very good at making very beautiful images. If, if you if you know, uh, capturing people in a way that is yeah very beautiful. I guess, oh well, that's very kind. Thank use. you. I mean, there's lots of different kinds of beauty, and so I guess there's a there's, there's probably another word out there that I'm looking for that I'm not really narrowing down when I'm saying beautiful. But you you know. Well, I mean, the, soulful maybe. Well, soulful. One thing I do is in my camera, as it's digital, there's hundreds of photos, I wouldn't even upload to a computer a picture of someone that is unflattering because (laughs) everybody has grimaces that they do without being aware of it or they have double chins or they have moments when they're sticking their tongue out or closing their eyes. I don't even bother with those. I only upload the the complimentary, flattering, honest ones but that also say something truthful about them. Right. And then out of those I choose the best. And, you know, if I photograph a woman who's who's ageing and doesn't like ageing, I won't take away her laughter lines because that's her beauty. But if she has a spot that day, I'll just remove it because she wouldn't have it the next day. So why would that be immortalised on Facebook? It doesn't seem to me dishonest. It seems to me fair. Um, And so I do capture the best of people but also their truth hopefully like if it's someone in a bus if I photograph a a very old man or a very old lady or a child I'll try and capture the expression that best embodies what makes them shine and so if you think it means beautiful hopefully you don't mean that I only photograph beautiful people no I I mean you get the beauty out yeah you make this it's like that that idea of making the stone more stony right the 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 form this Russian formulist idea um and you yeah that's what you do I think with your nice idea well I try I must say and so for me photography is a never-ending I mean as even the greatest photographers who've ever lived will said will have said on their 90th birthday that they're just beginning to learn how photography works you know I mean you never get you never get good you just get better than you were before so for me it's an exciting thing to do and I don't charge because I do it for love and it's almost symbolic yeah. I don't want it to, it to be a because nowadays with the internet and library image libraries no one can make a living from photography if they start late and yeah. I'm in my middle age now so I'm not going to make a living so I might as well do it as a passion and writing I would like to earn for and I do a lot of writing as part of my work which I'm well paid for a report is worth several thousand pounds and it takes a few weeks and so you know it's good money whereas a novel a literary fiction you might get paid I don't know 20 grand for something that took you 10 years so yeah it's hard to make a living from you, being a novelist for unless sure you're, unless, you're, days, unless uh, you're commercial yeah, and, and lucky, lucky few yes, exactly my, my lovely nephews and nieces 
who I call my nibblings, my siblings' children, who are the loves of my life, six of them. I've been telling them stories since they were born, and the oldest is 24, and I often tell continuing stories, and the stories always contain them. Several times they've asked me, why can't you just be J.K. Rowling and then be very rich and we can all have a yacht? And I say, because for every one J.K. Rowling, there's six million other children's story right, tellers yeah. and writers exactly. who don't get anywhere and it's the same with actors as 95% of the acting profession is unemployed at any one time writers ditto and so on but kids think well you know you tell stories that we like so put them in a book and then you can be J.K. Rowling yeah no I, 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 I've so, had that experience and, and not even just kids uh, my, me and, both me and my partner write and uh, both of us write novels sometimes Jen my partner only really writes novels I, I do lots of other things and once her father said to her you know what you need to do is, is get a story like you know like J.K. Rowling you know everybody yeah, everybody everybody wants to wants you to do even J.K. Rowling didn't know she was being no, J.K. Rowling no she didn't <laughs> I'm photographing you, you are, doing right? me it's, it's a I'm someone who, who I get very self-conscious around uh, photos, but I like uh, I like good pictures of myself. I'm like, well, got, we'll, do, we'll, do a, we'll do a session at the end. Then we'll do a session because I'll relax you. I promise. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. Okay, so what would what what well, else would you like to I know? I was going to say. I mean, you, like, well, so where we I sort of feel like where we are sort of like slightly out there is one of the things you told me before we started recording was that you've written a novel yourself, and that sort of novel is something that sums up a lot of like you put a lot of yourself into that novel. So it would be an interesting place to start. When well, thank about you. Yourself. I wrote it a long time ago, initially about fifteen years ago, based on a chapter that was published in a in a in a in a literary quarterly. I got an agent at William Morris she signed me on for three years but unfortunately during that time when I finished the final draft of the first writing of it um, I had a family tragedy my sister died she was 27 she had bipolar depression and she killed herself and that day I wrote the end at 5pm and at 8pm my mother phoned to tell me this horrible news and I just never wrote again for like 10 years and now I'm thinking of getting it back because the novel was never completely ready oven ready it was half and I can hear her in my head you know from wherever she is sort of in spirit saying come on get that book written you know she used to say she would want people to express themselves and she was always trying to express herself and look for things so I in her name I feel I should get it back one day but it was a it was a very fulfilling experience because I wrote it as a a sort of disguised memoir and I, I took my own you know I sort of changed everyone's names and so on but it was about my life and it was about the life of a woman who I felt I had experience of and it's about a quest for meaning the the title is inspired from T.S. Eliot's poem the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock where at one point he says do I dare to eat a peach and the novel was called this woman's name eats a peach and what I tried to find out is how in your mid-30s you make sense of the world and this woman is living with her aging, belligerent, dragon-like grandmother in North London in a Jewish area and her grandmother is sort of would-be religious and but hides on Saturday from the rabbi coming out of the synagogue so he doesn't see that she's been shopping. That kind of religious and the woman, the, the, the heroine is living with her grandmother because it was something that happened early on and she just ended up staying there for 15 years trying to work out where her wavelength might be in the world. And she spent her whole childhood travelling with her 
her family because her father had a job that sent him abroad. And she was brought up in, in, in Africa, in Israel, in India and in France, a lot in France, so she's kind of half French culturally. She comes back to the to the UK, she's living in North London, she works in television and she gets sent round the world and has an exciting travelling life and she tries to find meaning in work. But there's always something missing, she's working, she's got this interesting life but it doesn't fulfil her at some level. It's not fulfilling her emotionally, just intellectually, so there's something missing. So then she sort of has a rather dysfunctional relationship with men and she can never find the right partner so she has lots of toxic sex with one night stands all over the world and all over different places and each one is worse than the last and she writes little notes to herself while the man is snoring in bed after a 10 minute fumble that she wasn't you know was expecting more and she describes it as wanting the eyes of dead men to dance but they don't they don't they don't communicate so she's she realizes the meaning of life is not in a man uh, in fact, or a woman, because she tries that too. Sex, sex isn't the answer. Sex is wonderful, of course, if you have love with it and whatever, but it's not where you can find the meaning of life. And then she falls into a long-term depression and she has psychoanalysis, Freudian independent psychoanalysis, um, which I did have for six years, four times a week, with the most amazing analyst, who, some, who realised who I was straight away in our first meeting and realised that what I needed was boundaries, and he gave me boundaries and showed me how they work, and I never had any before. Yeah, I'm not good on boundaries, so I was like, Oh, yeah. you know, well, okay, well, he really showed me, and it was unbelievable how much I learned in that time. And so in the novel, she seeks meaning in analysis, and obviously she doesn't find meaning there either, but she learns a bit more about where all the demons come from and where her anger is and so on and so forth, and it sort of alleviates her depression, although it initially gets worse and to me psychoanalysis is a mental version of lancing a wound suppose you had a really big cut in your arm and you had to really go deep into it with some horrible painful tool to get all the dirt out and each time it hurts more and more and then slowly it starts to mend and mend and mend and then your skin cauterizes and you just have a scar and the psychoanalytic scar is the knowledge that we're all imperfect and no one will ever be we're all gonna die and you know you did yeah. life is life is shit so it's what you make of it <laughs> yeah it's also wonderful. Exactly. The terrible beauty it's of these life. Terrible, those terrible two things together, in a way, how beautiful and, wonder, and, and terrible it is at yeah. the same time. Wondrous horror. And, you know, Freud always said that his aim as, an, as a psychoanalyst was to, to, to transform nameless dread into common unhappiness. And most people are commonly unhappy with happy moments. And um, what the heroine of my novel discovers at the end is that the meaning of life was very simple she she's she's come to terms with her dragon grandmother and with all the love and hate she feels for her and is felt for her she goes traveling around the world but she discovers that when she's in a beautiful canoe on a spice island in indonesia traveling through the most paradisical landscape you've ever seen in your life you know indonesia is made up of 40,000 islands i think and and the, the spice islands alone are several hundred and you're just going through little tiny islands that emerge from the sea in front of you and the steam rises with the monsoon rain and fish are flying and beautiful people everywhere and it's just like being in heaven and she still thinks about the termites in her grandmother's carpet in a thick pile carpet of gold as green all of this happens to her she goes through all this trauma and the bad sex and the work that somehow doesn't fulfill and the colleagues that don't understand her and one day she's goes out for a picnic with a friend of hers she's always been she'd always been a little bit contemptuous of called Evangeline who's was a virgin at 30 and was very very blushed when you spoke to her and very sort of so she kind of slightly dismissed her as a bit square and unsophisticated but this friend in the end found love and happiness and and 
and you know had kids and so on with the right man that she married and she stayed kept her religion and so on but was always a lovely person this friend took her out for a picnic in london or they went for a walk and they end up sitting on the steps of the church that's in Trafalgar Square, St. James's... Uh, no, it's not St. James's, what's it called? Um, St. Stephen's Church, I think it's called. Yeah, I think it um, Opposite the National Gallery. And they're sitting on the steps, and her friend says to her, here, would you like a peach? And she peels the peach, and then the next day she takes her... Or the day before, I think, she takes her friend's dog for a walk. And she goes through the streets, and she realises this is the first time after six years of psychoanalysis that she's ever noticed what season it is, because she spent her whole 20s and 30s and teens never knowing what the season was, because she was so full of internal demons and that she never really could interact with the outside world. She realises what this dog is thinking and feeling, what the season is. Then she eats the peach with her friend on the steps, and she realises that was the meaning, is just to live. There isn't a meaning, it's just who you are. The first line of the novel is, I crack my knuckles... I wish I didn't, I'd rather be dancing or smiling, uh, but I do, and people hate it, and they wince, and they rage, but I still do it, and I can crack all ten of them at once, and so on. And then the last line of the novel is, the last line is, she finds the meaning in this peach eating, and then it says, crack, oops. So in other (laughs) words, no one ever gets, you know, you don't lose your demons, but you just learn how to. And then I discovered, and I want to put this in the novel, that this heroine, if she is going to be based on me, has a huge fortune, a a really fortunate thing, which is that I was born with something that very few of my friends have, and it makes me sad because you can't transmit it, which is a capacity for ecstasy, which goes way beyond sexual ecstasy or creative ecstasy, just any ecstasy. So I can be walking down a street in the rain, you know, and and, and, and get wet, and I'm just walking towards Ryman's to buy a pencil sharpener, and suddenly I just feel completely inhabited by the wonder of being alive in the world, the gratitude Mm. to be alive, the pleasure at seeing people walking towards me. There's a Spanish tourist, there's a little old lady, there's a man with a dog, and each one of them is special and unique. And I feel the the joy, and it lasts for quite a long time, not just a fraction of a second, but moments. And I've often been with loved ones, beloved friends or lovers, and said, isn't this moment magical? And they go, no, we're just sitting under a tree. And I said, but look at this tree. Put your back against it. You'll feel it vibrate against your back. Isn't it magic? Isn't it just the most magic? No, it's not. It's just a tree. Not just a tree. It's the tree. It's this moment's (laughs) tree. And, you know, I I had my... My, an ex of mine who I met on Facebook, we fell in love through Facebook and Skype. We had a year-long relationship and then we decided we weren't compatible as lovers but we'd stay friends. He wrote to me the other day and he said, Dear Hannah, I think I know how to love like you love, ecstatically. And I wrote back saying, Oh, do you mean ecstasy, the emotion, or the drug? And to my disappointment, he wrote back and said, The drug. I've taken ecstasy and now I know what you keep telling me you experienced. I'd hoped he'd felt it just because he's met this new woman and he loves her to bits. But he said the drug had made him feel what I've described I feel, which is love for all of humanity at once. But I think that's... One person... It's a, it's it. I've I've so I mean I've known people who've taken ecstasy, and uh, I've known people who have taken ecstasy and gone, oh, this is what I normally feel. Like I've known people who've had right. You, That's so, what I think so I don't need to bother. To me, yeah. if you took it, you would be like, oh yeah, this is what. But I feel I've been like high it. all my life. I mean, people always <laughs> think I'm drunk or parties. I have never drunk a drop of alcohol. I mean, I have drunk the odd half glass of wine, to be polite, but it's never more than half a glass, so I've never been drunk. I've never smoked pot, I've never taken drugs of any kind, hard or low, even though my own parents smoked pot, my sister took every kind of drug, my brother 
took and takes every kind of drug mm. recreationally, I hasten yeah, to add. Sure, sure. But I've never tried any of them because I get high at parties and people always say to me, oh, God, you're drunk or you're high. But I can snap out of it. But I'm, I'm high on atmosphere. And this last week, I've had what I call a friendship bath. I've seen the four or five people I love most in the world, coincidentally, yeah. all at once. My very best friend came to spend two days with me, and then another very close friend from Nigeria came that same night that my other friend left. And then the next day, my ex-partner and best friend in the whole world came for two days. And then another friend just called me up last night as it had just ended and said, are you alone and can I visit? Yes, and she came and sat in my garden, and we ate shrimps and strawberries and chocolate, and we had the most lovely talk, and now you're here, and I just feel... (laughs) inhabited by joy that's um, well this is an amazing quality to have though and I it's think just it, fortunate it is for you're right it is fortunate because I mean the, the person I knew who who had that experience of going oh well this is I've experienced this experience before when they took ecstasy is, is very much the atypical person who's taken ecstasy most people it changes their life a little bit like you're talking about and I, I mean I have I'm a, not saying, a friend you know, who died a family friend yeah. who was the founder of Neil's Yard and he wrote a book about ecstasy about for, uh, ecstasy for adults about how it's a wonderful thing and you need it for your life and to improve your approach to the world so I mean I will try it one day well, I don't um, necess- I'm not necessarily advocating it nor no but I, non- I definitely want to well, I'm sure <laughs> I do believe that great joy comes from great suffering and they are the, the counter of each other mm. and I would just say in summary without going into detail because otherwise it becomes immediately maudlin and it's not anyone else's problem but I have earned that ecstasy because you know, I had a very difficult childhood, but then many people did. But then as a young woman, my beloved younger sister died. She killed herself at 27. I was 10 years older than her. We were very close and I could feel her pain and I didn't want her to die. And we never, we didn't expect it. She jumped under a high-speed train and exploded and it was horrible. And then I was with my beloved ex-partner, who's my now my best friend. We tried to have children. My first pregnancy was down syndrome and heart defects so we ended the pregnancy because we were already older parents and we didn't think that a life with down syndrome and heart defects was a life to be wished on a child even though we desperately wanted her and we gave her a name and and we we terminated the pregnancy which would have probably ended anyway because she had so much wrong with her and the second pregnancy ended in miscarriage and the third pregnancy was a chemical pregnancy and then my partner said enough I can't do this anymore he was already 50 something by then and he said you'll have to leave me and have children with someone else and I said no I choose you and not children and then two years later our relationship ended anyway by which time I was 44 and all the men I met after that didn't want kids and I didn't feel able to have it on my own and then my two very 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 best friends in England my mentors they're both writers a man and a woman and they were my guidelines my spiritual touchstones they both died that year one of a heart attack at 55 just cycling he died of a heart attack and he was like he was my spiritual touchstone he was the most wise loving humanist intelligent dramatic dynamic sexually adventurous fun person I'd ever met in my life or will ever meet and the woman she was a writer and a poet and she was in her early 60s and she died of a very quick cancer and it was horrible to watch her fade and die. And they died at the same time, just within those few years, of my sister and my two unborn babies. And then my beloved partner had been looking after me for eight years, one year of good year, and then eight years, seven years of just being my carer. At the end, he said, I can't do this anymore. He said, I will love you till the day I die. You will always be the most exceptional woman in my life, but 
this is not a romance anymore, I can't do it, I need to go off and be on my own. And he met someone else and then someone else and now we're still good friends, but it ended. When my love of the love of my life, the, that relationship ended, after losing my sister, my two closest friends, my three unborn daughters, two unborn daughters and an unknown gender baby, when all that happened, I thought, okay, well, this is this is it. And then I was diagnosed a year and a half ago with a chronic neurological condition that will probably make me disabled uh, fairly potentially severely in the, in who knows how many years plus it gives me a 30% increased chance of dementia over the general population because it's a it's parkinson's disease it's a dopamine whatever so i thought okay lucky i have this capacity otherwise i would just have to do what my sister did but then i can't ever do that i will never ever 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 take my own life because of the six children in the family that would kill them it would destroy them forever and i would never do that to them well, let yeah. alone my parents and friends and loved sure. ones they're all grown ups but the kids would be devastated because right. i'm so close to them i'm their darling auntie and they're my darling babies and you know they they literally talk about some of them about mummy and daddy and hannah you know we're all together in this, and I could never do that to them, nor would I want to. But if I didn't have the capacity effects to see, all these misfortunes would add up, and I just think, oh, fuck it, I give yeah, up. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you're, you're right. So and we're lucky. So Those yeah, are, we're lucky. <laughs> we're the lucky it, it, ones. Exactly. No, I think it, it's definitely well, to have that capacity. Yeah, it's definitely lucky to have that capacity. But it is, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, particularly particularly fortunate for someone who's gone through so much to have that capacity. Because yeah, I mean, you. you it, that is a lot to go through, and I don't want to like no, uh, it's a to lot not of, acknowledge it's that. It's a lot of loss, moment. most of all, right. bereavement and loss. And I wanted to be a mother more than I ever wanted anything in my life, and it never occurred to me that it wouldn't happen. And, and now you're an aunt, basically, to a I'm lot an of people. Yeah. And you sort of you've you, you, you're passionate, right? And you're passionate about being that non-parental figure in those those children's lives. Um, and I don't impose on them, though. I wouldn't want the pressure right. for them to feel... When I was depressed, it was a pressure and I stayed away from them because they, I felt I would run the risk of making them feel that my happiness was their responsibility. So I stayed away, um, even though their parents, my sister and her husband, said, you can see the kids, it's OK, when I had my nervous breakdown. I said, I don't want them to see me like this, they'll, they'll feel bad. And, but but they, So they don't feel any pressure, but we just have fun together. And their parents, my brother and his wife and my sister and her husband, know that when their kids come to me, no rules apply. We, so the first thing they do is they walk into the house and they swear for 10 minutes solid because they're not allowed to do that anywhere else. Then they sing at the top of their voices. Then we have meals comprising exclusively chocolate for starters, main course and dessert, all chocolate. And then we watch telly at four in the afternoon. And then we have a bath while eating dinner in the bath. We do things like that. You know, like I have a bath with my niece and my two nephews have a bath together and I put a tray in the middle of the bath and they can eat in the bath or they can eat watching telly. <laughs> Everything that's forbidden is allowed. This but is they know it's point. only in this yeah. house. The magic kingdom, as they call it. So, it's, But that's a wonderful thing to give to children. I mean, I had a, some of that, I guess, in my childhood. In the, So when I was having a dark time um, in... Uh, not, you know, not the same darkness, and, and I'm not making Everyone any comparisons exactly. Um, but when I was having a, a, a dark time in uh, in my life between the ages of eight, eight and twelve, my uh, father didn't live with us. He lived in a, a separate house, and I saw him at weekends. And I had some of that magic in his house when I went to his house. You know, it was a we, we could draw on the Lovely. you know we could draw on the and that's that's by that stage we could draw on the it was the doors we could draw on. But originally it was the wall. He had everybody's wall where everybody who came to the house. What drew a good pictures. idea! Yeah, a wonderful idea. And, 
and that sort of kind of magic yeah Mm. and the kind of magic you're talking about like and and those 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 things i think so there's a lot there has been a lot of darkness and kind of complexity in my life but there's also been a lot of joy too and i think a lot of that joy comes from having those childhood experiences of the magic it doesn't have to be your parents although having said that my my nibblings parents are wonderful parents so they just have an extra with me it's not an alternative it's not different it's just more it's like a friendship but i think my biggest compliment was when my nephew said to me one day he said Anna, I'm going to be five tomorrow. And I said, I know you are. It's wonderful, isn't it? And he said, oh, maybe I won't be able to play with you anymore. And I said, why not? And he said, because you'll be too babyish for me. <laughs> and he actually thought that I was five. And that was great for me. And he then, you know, he would have presumably thought he'd offended me. But no, it was a That's compliment. lovely. But tell me, are you and Jen going to have children? Um, we're, we're not going to have children. Oh, that's no, true. Uh, we don't we don't want to have children. Oh, okay. So I feel a bit... Uh, I feel awkward in that dynamic of saying, so I, I've chosen not to have children. Well, that's brilliant. You're right. lucky. It's really good I'm, that those who don't be, the, be by choice. Right, but then it's a, it's a bit tri- tri- tricky position of being, not tricky, but it feels so unfair that there's people who want to have children and, who, yeah. are, who can't, and then people who don't want to have children who, who, who yeah. Oh, don't worry. The least of our worries. I mean, <clears> I, <throat> I came to terms quite quickly with avoiding all forms of envy of other people's kids because I realised <laughs> that a woman having a baby when you're trying to is having her baby not yours right she hasn't come into your house to steal your womb and have your baby or take your man or take this your eggs she's having her own child not yours and the other thing is through my loss of my first pregnancy I discovered the most extraordinary support system online you asked me about Facebook Dave well online there's a group called a heartbreaking which exists exclusively to support women who terminate pregnancies that they much wanted because the child is either not viable or will have a very blighted life and on that website is a memorial garden for each of the children who and they each have a name and a birth and a date well a a death date and and a message from their parents and it's it's a chat room for the women to talk to each other and I had it for a year every day and I had never thought of ever using the internet for anything before personal I mean these were early days this was a long time ago and it never occurred to me that it could do such a thing. And it was so much solidarity. And yeah. I was even helping women in America whose own doctors were anti-abortion and called them murderers for aborting a child with encephalitis who didn't have a brain or didn't have legs or, you know, whatever it might be. I mean, we never, ever, none of us ever were terminating for some cosmetic reason. It was always for something mm. that was not either non-viable or a completely blighted life. And we didn't want to, none of us. And we helped each other. And it was very... And one of the women there became such a close friend. I still never met her. And she lived in Cleveland, Ohio, and we ended up writing to each other, my darling, and signing I love you, and we didn't even, hadn't met. She said, look, I've had the frozen eggs that I, I did with my husband. I, she, she got donor eggs and her husband's sperm. We had them implanted in me. I've got pregnant now. I've had my child. There's still some left. Do you want them? Do you want to give birth to a sibling of my child? Wow. So, you know, on the internet, people offer you, wow. do you want a used car? She's saying, <laughs> you know, yeah. do you want... Have, have a baby from my eggs and in the end I didn't because um, the time wasn't I wasn't in the position where I could and her child was um, there were lots of problems in the end and also her husband wasn't absolutely sure he wanted it so it, it wasn't but it was a genuine offer at the time and I was overwhelmed I mean I was in and the day when I lost the second baby through miscarriage and I went to the hospital and they did a scan and the woman looked a bit shocked suddenly and she said there's a problem and I said Yes, but 
the baby's not dead, right? And the, and the nurse said, yes, she is. And I said, and I screamed really loud. And I said, you can't say that. That's what my mother said about my sister. You can't say that. And there was a student in the room, a medical student. And I screamed so loud and with such pain that she got up from her chair and ran out the room, which presumably is not what their medical students are supposed to do. But I, know, I remember noticing in the corner of my eye, and I had a probe inside me, and I just jumped up, and it was really painful, and I couldn't even feel the pain. This metal thing stuck in me, and my partner was holding my hand. And she literally, I said to my my mother had said to me, your sister has hurt herself. And I said, but she's not dead, is she? And she said, yes, she is. So that yes, you, yeah, you yes, she is, is the worst. I never right want to hear that, that ever moment. again, yeah, ever, ever, Jesus. ever again. It was just horrible, horrible, horrible. So, so you know, in the name, I mean, in the Jewish I'm not religious at all. I'm an, I'm an atheist, but I am very culturally Jewish. And in our culture, there's such a thing as a dibuk, which is an unquiet soul that inhabits the living. And often it's a tragic tale and the dibuk kills the living host. But the way I reinterpret the possibility of dibuks is that they are people who died too soon and who inhabit you. Basically, it's just common sense. If you lose someone young, that person stays inside you as long as you're alive. So my sister will never be dead so long as all her family are still alive. Right. And in the name of... Oops, I'm so sorry. That's okay. In, in the name of my um, lost loved ones, my sister and my unborn children, two of whom have names, I feel it's my duty to live well. Yeah. Because my sister will never be older than 27. And I'm already pretty much double her age. And what good would it be if I just went around moaning about my... And also, if I asked you what your troubles were, they would be just as bad as mine. If I asked the, the person walking in the street in front of this house what their troubles were, they would be just as bad. They'd be different. Everyone mm. suffers. And it's what you do with it that matters. Yeah, right. And if you, you know, you spread... So... Basically, I think people sometimes accuse me on Facebook of being Pollyanna-ish, and I say, "Look, I think happiness is earned, and I've got some, and I'm in credit. You know, I've, I've earned it. I've suffered yeah. enough. I well, cried I think for you're ten pretty years. much straight, anyway. Like up about what you're feeling. So on Facebook, sometimes you'll be very positive. Sometimes you'll be quite, you know, there'll be a negative element to it. You oh know, right, I try like, to avoid that too much because I don't want to. Um, I also don't want to complain. It's really hard yeah, to find the tone. I, I no, but I think in a good. I think it's a good balance. I think it's like the the, the yin and the yang, if you like, are, are there within what, what your Facebook status is, which is a bold, a big claim for me to make. But that's how I feel when I read them. Well, <clears throat> that you sort of you, you you're always aware of the potential, you know, of how everything connects together. So when you're talking about joy, there's a, there's a, there's there will be pinpricks of of the other things that, that 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 you know. If you're having joy, you know that somebody else isn't having joy. So you know, there's always that, and there's you know, there's people there's, dying. Well, there's and, melancholy in joy, yeah. but there's also <clears throat> the solidarity you feel for other people. Right. But it's if you want to share, if you want to communicate rather than just express yourself, but actually communicate. It's always a fine line, and I find it endlessly fascinating and important, and I'm sure everyone who does Facebook with any degree of, of passion and, and pleasure makes this calculation every time they put anything online, on Facebook or a chat room or a film lover support group or anything that you do. 
am I doing this in a way that will help other people mm. who are also suffering or that will make them feel worse or will their solidarity, will, you know, will they feel... And sometimes I go out walking in my neighbourhood and I've fallen in love with my neighbourhood, which is a working-class North London neighbourhood and it's so much less yuppie than my previous one. And Okay, there's no posh restaurants and you can't buy, you know, out-of-season strawberries here, but thank God for that because there's real people everywhere. Right. And I go out and I just see all sorts of exciting things happening around me and I write them down and it cheers people up and that's all good. But then if I'm really down, I think, actually, is it right to stay away from social networks or should I be back on them and say, those of you who are down, I know where you are coming from. Yeah, so I Let's have share notes. that feeling a lot. Like I've been trying to talk about my mental health issues more like to, to when I'm down to say that to share it to but share in a way that. that is helpful not hindering yeah well it's, it's also I mean every time because I mean I, I'm more of a Twitter person than a Facebook person in some yeah. ways but every time I every time I sort of do share my my uh, my experiences what surprises me is rather than people like when you when you share them you think that you're going to be bringing other people down or you're going to be annoying people who are happy and sort of raining on their parade right but every time I've done it I've always had the experience of love like lots of people saying I ex- and, and solidarity I experienced that too you know anytime you say you know and, and, and actually I think it black dog uh, yeah, yeah and, and it can really be helpful for you right like uh, when other people post about their mental health issues I find that to be like I'm not alone somebody else has the experience I can reach out to them and so when you're sort of in a down point you can give other people the opportunity to reach out to you and to connect and well but it's, it's all in the wording isn't it because some people are complaining yeah. and others are apologising for feeling bad and you yeah. also have to avoid passive aggression and say you know somebody doesn't like me on Facebook just say who it is and say what your problem is you also have to avoid false modesty and say oh I know this is nothing but I recently won a prize don't say it's nothing well, my, so I'm thrilled or, yeah well my problem comes from mainly from the when I, what I find the hardest is to it's so hard it's particularly being socialised as a man I think but but it's so hard to admit that you're weak in public uh, and that's the thing that, that I find As so hard as a Brit hard. and a man right. and, a, and a professional right all of those things the and same, you're yeah. writing in cyberspace which is an yeah where quantity. everyone can see it yeah exactly and, 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 and it is hard to admit that you're that you, not that you're weak because it's like when we say we're broken like people people often say someone said to me today you know uh, that they were a broken person and I say it about myself but whenever when anyone else says it I, I'm like no no one's broken you, you don't you don't get well, broken. Temporarily broken right exactly damaged but they're not broken all of these damaged, words yeah. Are, are, like yeah there like, was a crack right. in everything that's right. how the light gets in yeah exactly you know, that's what you have to remember. Yeah. Crack people. I mean, I once went to a New Year's Eve party about 20 years ago in, in New York City, and there were about four Americans and three Yugoslavs, as it then was, Serbians. And they had been through all kinds of war zones and horrors, and the Americans hadn't. They were quite sort of happy, privileged New Yorkers with the usual problems we all have, but no. And there was a different look in the eyes of the people who'd been through war and yeah. those who haven't. And I, I think that those of us who have been broken or are damaged or can break easily, you know, she aches, da-da-da-da-da, but she breaks like a little girl. We're all like that, but that gives us... You shouldn't apologise. That makes us... You, that gives right. us... I hate clichés, but it's so hard not to when you're interviewed. Yeah. You, you're always on the spot when you're... Oh, clichés are so hard to avoid anyway. I hate them too, but the problem is that sometimes they're you apt, and when to, they're yeah, apt, it's so frustrating. You have to find it. You I have know. to find it. What... <laughs> 
I guess it's all in whether, I suppose a lot of the sharing of depression to, is to do with what the quantities of self-pity are. A person with a large quantity of self-pity and narcissism is going to share their negativity in a way that won't be helpful to other people. Right. And someone who can vanquish that in themselves, and we all have vanity and narcissism, but if you can overcome it and say, how can I communicate this sorrow in a way that other sorrowful people will feel a little bit less alone? Or that they'll be able to comfort yeah. you without you saying, it's okay, don't comfort me, it's all right, I'm fine. You know, I posted a joke the other day because I, against myself because I do have a tendency towards Jewish passive aggression. It's all right, it's okay. Like when you leave, I could say to you, it's all right, just leave, I don't care. See if I just go, go, I don't care. I don't care, I'll be fine, I'll just sit here alone. It's that, I'm joking, yeah, yeah. in your case, but in the case of a friend leaving me, I'll say that. And I posted a little joke, it was just, it's a meme. It's a picture of Edgar Allan Poe sitting at his desk and there's a raven. And it says, passive-aggressive raven, and the raven's saying, never mind, <laughs> instead of never more. You know, and it just, yeah. it's, you have to be so careful to, and we all make mistakes, and sometimes I post things and then delete them, or apologize, or, and yeah. I've decided not to even talk about the Middle East, because it brings out the worst in everyone. Yeah, I sort of avoid that topic as well, but which makes me sort of feel complicated, because uh, we should be, we should be, pu- we should be, yeah, we should be facing everything, we should yeah. be able to talk, Nail but at the same time... Yeah, that's another part of of what what makes you you. What the elements of you is that you're very international. Like your like your, your character in your book, you know, was based is based on you, right? And and they have lots of languages and have travelled all around the world. I mean, you, and you speak languages like all of these things that I always I'm always envious of other people for having. But at the same time, I maybe I should just like take a year and properly learn and do it. And do it yeah. Well, there's two things I'd say about that, um, Dave. I've I've had that all my life. A combination of of, of of envy and, and sort of <laughs> surprise because when I was a little girl I was brought up for four years in Nigeria, two years in Israel, uh, then as a teenager 15 years in France, five years in England only out of my whole childhood and it was a big mix and then two years in India, you know India, Africa, Israel, France, all these different places. It's a fortune, it's a good luck and when you're 10 years old you don't understand how someone else in, in London say doesn't know what a snake is or a beggar or you know six years old you've seen all these things however you then as a young adult go and see films for example about high school reunions in America Hmm. with picket fences and you think I couldn't possibly have a high school reunion I had a different school in a different culture in a different language every two years nobody remembers what my name is in those countries let alone watched me grow up all your friends you make and then you lose every two years. You have no roots. When I watch the Olympic Games, I do not know which is us. Because I was brought up in Nigeria. I'm half culturally French. Do I watch Britain? Is that us? England? I, I don't even know where Southampton right. is in relation to Norwich. I have no <laughs> idea where these places are. I never grew up here. I mean, my history to me is the French Revolution. I did history in France. I don't know the difference between George II and Edward V or whatever right. his name is. I haven't a clue. So I'm not really British culturally at all. So when I go here and no one has any eye contact in the street, I feel personally affronted. I can't bear the privacy element of British life and the reservedness. It drives me round the fucking bend. But I love British irony, which the French didn't have. They have passion, but not irony. They never mock themselves. A French professor would never come to a class and say, forgive me, I'm probably about to bore you all, but he'd say, anyway, I'm two hours late because I was having lunch with General de Gaulle or whatever, and then he talks to you in a sort of, you know, they're they're just pompous and pretentious intellectual Mm. or whatever, even though the value of the actual intellect is no different in France or England, but one has 
self-deprecating humor and we worship failure and so on and we have John Cleese as a public you know icon and they they will have some much more serious you know Gérard Depardieu I mean he's not exactly a laugh a minute it, it is a different culture and I really do love um, that irony but I don't love anything else about the British each man for himself and I say advisedly man and a house is your castle and privacy matters more than anything and, and I read a wonderful sociology book called Watching the English by Kate Fox and she talks yeah. about the unwritten rules of English behaviour which is hypocrisy, privacy, something else, something else. She says English people don't even often gather just for gathering's sake. They gather because it's Tuesday and it's cricket day today or let's gather for the Women's Institute or let's gather for the gardening club. But they don't just say let's meet for the sake of meeting and she says the only other place which is as respectful of individual space is Japan, and that's also an overcrowded island. That's really interesting. Uh, that, that came up in one of the conversations I had with somebody who's lived in Japan, the, of the similarities between the UK and Japan. And I'd never thought of it before, but now you're saying that as well. And he was also well, talking was about watching the English as well. People keep That keeps coming up in all of these yeah, conversations. I bought that so book for all my French it. colleagues. It's delightful. I think I probably have two copies here. You can take one. Oh, well, I've already got one, but I haven't read yeah. it yet. <laughs> it's worth it. And, and, and when I read, I haven't read it all. I've only read bits of it. But when I read it, and I actually spoke to her once because I wanted to interview her for a programme and she wasn't free, but she sounded really interesting. But I remember reading the first chapter and thinking, oh, that's why I don't feel at home here. And I read it with my then partner who was English, but he doesn't feel at home either. And he, no. when, we, when we went to Cuba together, the first day we arrived in Havana, we just felt, I'm home. Because yeah. You know, or, or, or when we went to Uganda together and Malawi, we felt at home. It's funny that I mean, I've I've never I've, I mean I've I've been outside of the UK and that I've I've uh, gone on holidays places, but I've uh, I've 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 lived here you know all my life, um, but I moved between England and Wales like consistently. Um, North or south. Uh, well, North Wales and South Wales, I've lived in both. Uh, Cardiff, I lived in when I was a teenager, so that's like the place I have the most cultural identity with. But having moved around just in the UK, I kind of don't feel connected to any place, even just moving around that much. I think. But if you move from <clears throat> continent to continent, you don't know yeah. who, where you belong, and right. you do wish for those roots. You right. really do, because you no, envy I... people who know that they belong. They belong in the streets of Paris or Jerusalem or North London or, or, or See, Manchester I or Liverpool. I envy those people and I've lived in the place all the time. I can only imagine how much more that envy must be if it's yeah. been so so. So in other words, being, yeah. being rootless means you're free from nationalism, you're free from right. national pride, which is a great thing. It is good. And you have a hugely sophisticated approach to the world as a child because you know that people are different. You know there are poor and rich and you know there are black and white. You know some people eat with their mouth open and some closed and, and you know some people burn up at dinner and some don't and everything's you know that life is 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 fluid and I remember my parents did some things which I really respected in my childhood is they copied cultures that gave them things they wanted to get so they copied the Bedouins and they taught us children that Bedouin culture was the best which is 100% hospitality so if in our house if we had three pieces of chicken and a guest arrived and there were three of us immediately we'd give the guest one of them and we would share the other one it would never be a question of well, that person is the interloper, they can have a sandwich, it would be, you give, and if someone praises an object that you have, it's still in my culture now, if I can spare it in any, even a little, if potential, I would give it. I, I even And clients sometimes, I had once a colleague came and I hardly knew him, and he came and he just, 
said he was so in love with my little Mexican sculpture of the Day of the Dead because his wife was obsessed with the Mexican Day of the Dead. Please, could I tell him where to get it? And I said, well, I bought it in L.A. in the Mexican quarter. And he said, oh, I'm not going to L.A. And I just said, look, take it to your wife and just give it to her. And it would give her... He was so ecstatic, he almost burst into tears. But it would give her more pleasure to have it than for me to keep it because someone clearly had an obsession. I'm not obsessed with the Day of the Dead. I just like it, right. so I can go and get another one. Yeah. Rootlessness is a good, is a curse and a blessing, and I'm overall I'm glad I had it. I'm glad I had rootlessness. I'm glad that I can identify as much with an Israeli as a Palestinian, as much with a Nigerian housewife as I can with a French poet. You know, I like to be able to be a bit of everything, but I also wish I had what my friends have, which is rootedness and anchored, and they have the same friends since yeah. childhood. And but they, we always wish what we what the, what yeah, the others have, and we never. Yeah, it's true. Like, it's hard to value what we have. Have you finished? No, no, we're just about sort of round up. We're, we're moving towards the end. Okay. So the last question that I ask everybody is, do you have anything to plug? Now, people sometimes take that in a literal sense of plugging things that they have, but uh, that, they, that they do or whatever. But, but um, sort of quite early on, people started taking it like in a, in a wider sense of like ideas or thoughts things or whatever. So feel free to take okay. it whichever way you want. I do... You- I do need a tiny bit of time to think about it because I would plug so many things. <laughs> and I do on Facebook, as you'll probably notice, I, 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 I put a lot of things I wish people would enjoy. I was just thinking more of an attitude of, of just to try and be in the moment and really, really, really relish what you have around you. But I'd like to pu- plug something more specific and I'm trying to think, you know, like Brazilian music or... or whatever or this song or that song or this film or that film I think all I would say then I would just plug one little thing is it's common knowledge there's a film out in London at the moment that has had universally good reviews but it won't be seen by a lot of people because it's an art house movie and it's nearly three hours long and it's called Boyhood and in my opinion it's one of the supreme achievements of modern cinema because it achieves deceptive simplicity and it's a beautiful technique where the director spent 10 or 20 days a year for 12 years filming the same actors, uh, starting with a hero who starts at six years old and finishes at whatever, 18. And he films these and then he puts it all together in a film where the, the time passes seamlessly with the very same actors aging. And the, the, the hero's sister is played by the director's daughter, so presumably it was a kind of family affair. But the end result is something so humane and so unlike other films. And it's it's directed by Richard Linklater, who made Before Sunrise, Before Sunset and Before Midnight, which are three of the best films Lovely of films. recent times. And they were co-made by the actors. Yeah. Judy Delpy and Ethan Hawke co-wrote their own parts. In this film, you can tell there's a lot of improvisation based around the actors. And there's a young actor who wasn't professional and maybe will become or may not called L.R. Coltrane who stars in this. And he's six years old at the beginning and 18 years old at the end. And there's something I've never, ever, except once before in the cinema, found two and a half hours go by like two and a half seconds, as I did in this film. The other time that happened was three and a half hours was The Seven Samurai, the long version, even though it's black and white, medieval Japan, subtitles, and I had a It it does flow by, though. It flows by, because everything's perfect. And in in Boyhood, I would just say that the reason I would recommend anyone listening to this, if there is anyone listening to this, thank you for bearing with my narcissistic (laughs) spiel, please go and see Boyhood, and if it's not on anymore by the time you hear this, then get it on DVD, and just immerse your in just simplicity of everyday life and, and, and a humane approach to, to people and nothing much happens and nothing happens that hasn't happened in other films before but the way it's filmed is very, I think, humanistic 
filmmaking is very difficult and I think John Waters has it in the burlesque style. He films freaks with love, whereas Todd Solon's films freaks without love, with a forensic gaze. In photography, Martin Parr photographs freaks without love. He makes them into little bits of themselves because he doesn't love humanity in his work anyway. I don't know, I've never met him. Other photographers, like Diane Arbus, will photograph freaks with love. And when I say freaks, I mean the wide sense of the word freak, anyone who isn't the norm. And, And I think in this case, Boyhood is not about freaks, it's about very ordinary people, but it's done with such humanity and love and compassion that every scene seems to work and that even the scenes that don't work or the few misfires or the few bad bits are. And I just urge you to listen out for one delightful little piece of dialogue, which is a woman who only appears for briefly in the film. She's a teacher. The young boy is about to go from school to university and she says, you know, good luck, honey. And she's wishing him luck and he says something like, oh God, you know, I'm scared. And she said, yes, that voluptuous panic. And then two minutes later she says, and don't forget to floss. And you realise that the same person can can use such poetry as voluptuous panic to describe being about to launch into yeah. the adult life, but then also say, "Don't forget to floss." Well, that, yeah. You know, the, the way it's written is so humane, is so so close to reality and people that I would I would say that's probably a, as good as a film of its kind. Can well, I, I I really want to see it. I you haven't, I haven't it, seen yeah. it yet, but I am definitely going to see it. Richard Linklater is probably. In, you know, without in my top five. Uh, I haven't even seen Dazed and Confused. You know, I need to get that. I haven't even seen it. But anyway, um, <sighs> I would like to say it's been a pleasure talking to you. But I feel if anyone has listened to all this, that I've been very disconnected, and I probably sound immensely arrogant, which I can't help. I can't help it. I'm just because I'm not shy, and I don't go um 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 um. I probably sound like I'm declaiming, and I'm really sorry, and I apologise to anyone who has listened this far for my declaration. You don't need to, to apologise, <laughs> but you're very welcome to, to apologise if that's what you feel that you need to do. But I, 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 I've enjoyed it. I'm sure the Thank listeners you. will enjoy it. And, and people always feel, and maybe it's a British thing, but you're not so culturally British, but, but everyone always feels like that their stories are like, when they've, when they've finished, you know, they, they sort of feel self-conscious about having revealed, and it's just, it's, that's... I That's don't. I feel that I didn't. Or, I didn't organise my thoughts very well, and it was just a big jumble. And I can't imagine how it could be interesting to anyone. But if you want to put your things up, that's your project, not mine. <laughs> I will let you do it. But if you choose to junk it and not put it up there, I'll be totally understanding. Well, I'm as well. pretty sure I won't be junking it. And well, I mean, I, I, you know, I, 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 uh, I, I, I edit, you know the microphone falling over or the people humming too much or whatever but at the end of the day I'm, I've enjoyed this conversation I'm pretty sure it will go out pretty much as, well, as whatever you want to do it's your project and I admire <laughs> you for it and I would also like to say as a very final word which um, Dave would probably say himself but he shouldn't do everyone should do a little bit more of what Dave does for a living which is storytelling and it is what makes us human and, uh, and if it wasn't for the Greek chorus of our lives we wouldn't have lives worth telling and uh, and those people like Dave who permit us all to be the uh, Greek chorus should really be encouraged and I hope everyone listening to the podcast will think oh I must go and tell my story somewhere I must write a play or write a novel or just go and tell my next door neighbour what I think of them or whatever it might be just tell stories guys I hardly, I hardly agree with that I support <laughs> that the last thing I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience so say whatever, however you want to do that well, if you have listened this far, I thank you very much for listening, and I would say goodbye, tigers. Goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs>
find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter, at UBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook, it's Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website, www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk. You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. And on the Stitcher Smart Radio app, you can download for your smartphone from stitcher.com or through the App Store. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted.